Some good worship. I owe everybody here an apology. I, I talked out of turn yesterday. I preached a funeral for an African-American lady and mostly African-American folks here. And I said, you know, the problem is white people don't sing. And they were like, you're right. But boy, praise the Lord. You put me to shame on that. That's, that's neat. And we talked about this. This is, we're, we're getting ready for heaven. When we praise the Lord in heaven, we're going to be, oh, we're going to be rejoicing. We're going to be glorifying God. It doesn't mean we come here, we're all happy, 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 a bunch of hypocrites. You could, you could be struggling this morning, but the Bible says we can be sorrowful and always rejoicing in Christ. And, and so I praise the Lord. That was really uh, exciting. In fact, I really like that song when we sung about he's holding on to me. He won't let me go. It reminds me of Philippians 1.6. He that began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ. So that fits right into our study of the book of Romans because the book of Romans is this wonderful story of the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God that Jesus Christ came down from heaven to save us, not just from the penalty of sin, but from its power and ultimately its presence. And so we're in the middle of this study. And so if you're new with us, if uh, you don't have a Bible, I'd invite those of you who do to turn to Romans chapter 8, but our ushers have extra Bibles just raise your hand. You're welcome to have one of these Bibles if you don't have one or if you just want to borrow it this morning. And I understand that for those of you who are starting with us today, you might be like, this is like watching Star Wars 3 if you haven't seen episode 1 and 2. So you're going to have to go home and get caught up. But you could do that by going back, reading Romans 1 through 7. You can listen to the messages on um, our website or get CDs. You can get a study Bible. But let me just tell you where you are so at least you won't keep leaning over and saying, who's that? Like in a movie that you came halfway over. What does that mean? Who's that? So well, here's where we are in the book. In Romans chapter 1 through 4, Paul is showing us how to get right with God, how to get saved, how to be forgiven, how to be what the Bible calls justified. And he says, here's how. You have to acknowledge your sin. God's angry because we're sinners. None of us are good enough. So you can go out in the world and they're going to tell you, just be good and you'll go to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's none righteous. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. We've all broken God's laws. And we all deserve to go to hell for our sin. Now, some people get offended by that, but that's what God says. And he also says there's no good works that you and I could do to repay that. It's just all over the Bible. There's nothing we can do to pay God to earn our salvation. No penance, no purgatory. No, nothing. But God in his love for us, the Bible says, God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. He satisfied God's anger toward our sin. He paid a debt that he didn't know. Jesus died for you. And when he died on that cross, the lamb of God shed his blood. And he said, it's finished. He didn't say, I'll split it with you. So the first part of Romans is about how to get right with God by faith. It's by grace. It's a gift. I receive Christ. In all that he is as my Lord and Savior. And the Bible says, when that happens, you're justified. You are forgiven. You have peace with God, and you can have assurance that you're going to go to heaven. If you don't have that assurance yet, then that's what you want to keep reading, praying, talking to us, and help us to point you to Christ until you know that you're right with God. But the, the, the beauty of the gospel is, as I said last week, there's an app for everything. And it's not just like, oh, here's your hell insurance, and I'll see you when Jesus comes back. But now we're in the middle of the book of Romans. We're in chapters 5 through 8, which is often called the hope of the gospel because there's this present experience of what the Bible calls sanctification and then a future hope that I'm going to have glorification. Now, sanctification is progressively 
being released from the power of sin in my life. So it's not just God going, hey, you're forgiven from the penalty. He's going, I want to free you from its power so that you're becoming more like Jesus. And so the way that he unfolds that in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 is he begins by telling us that the first thing you and I need to do is recognize that we're not going to continue in sin because we've been crucified with Christ. We've died with him and been raised with him so that we can walk a new life, so that we can bear fruit for God, so that we can please God. And Paul says, you need to consider that true. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Then he uses the analogy in chapter 6 of slavery. He says, who are you going to present yourself to? Do you want to keep presenting yourself to the old master of sin, which results in death? Or now that you're free, we present ourselves to God as those who are alive for the dead, and, and we begin to experience sanctification. You come to chapter 7, and a lot of people are kind of thrown off by this because it almost seems like Paul's throwing out a JK here. Like, yeah, yeah, now you're free, and you can have victory, and you can bear fruit for God, but don't try this at home. So Romans 7 verses 14 through 25 has been looked at from many, many different angles. And many Christians hold the position that this is describing the normal Christian experience. Okay? In other words, when, when we read verse 24, wretched man that I am who will set me free from this body of death, that, that's sort of what it really means to be a Christian, that you know, you're always going to be conscious of this struggle of sin. Now, the reason why I don't agree with that, I don't think what Paul's primarily saying here is this is the normal experience, is number one, he's not just talking about wrestling with sin in our thoughts. He's talking about practicing sin. He says, the very things I don't want to do, that's what I keep doing. The very things I want to do, that's what I don't do. And then he says, oh, wretched man that I am. So what I want to suggest here is that, yeah, I agree that the Christian life is a struggle with sin. But I think what Paul's teaching us here in Romans 7, in the last part, is that the struggle intensifies as we try to please God in our own efforts. Paul mentions the word I 22 times in 7, 14 through 25. But as he asks in verse 24, who's going to set me free? He then says, I thank God, verse 25, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my suggestion is that as we head into chapter 8, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, you can now please God because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit. So while I grant that there is a struggle, the tenor of, of Romans 8 is that the Christian life should be a life characterized by growing victory, not just constant struggle and defeat. So let me rehearse with you what we looked at last week, and then we're going to move further into this chapter. But let's pray before we do that. Father, as the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Word, open our eyes, help us to listen carefully. I thank you for a, a church full of people who are hungry to grow and who, like the Bereans, are searching the Scriptures. Thank you for the way you're powerfully unleashing your Word in many, many hearts, changing our lives. It's such a privilege to come together and worship Jesus and also to listen to his word. So I pray that all of us, me too, will be blessed and edified by this glorious book of Romans. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what I suggested last week is verses one through four is starting out with this premise, that now that we're Christians, the work of Christ on the cross and the indwelling of the Spirit enables us to please God. We can now please God. 
Matter of fact, some of you grew up with a parent who you felt like you could never please. I frequently talk to people about this. It leads to all kinds of struggles from, you know, perfectionistic parents. You know, hey, Dad, I got all A's and one A minus. Well, why'd you get an A minus? Dad, I hit a home run yesterday in softball. Oh, that's nothing. When I was a kid, I hit two home runs. Dad, I decided I want to be um, a welder. A welder? Come on. You're better than that, you know? And so somehow when we have that mentality that we can never please someone, it discourages us. But in some ways, I think that's how people often view God. It's like, yeah, right. He wants us to be perfectly holy like Jesus. Right. And on the one hand, there's some truth to that. Because at the end of the day, if I, if I said, God, I'm going to try really hard to please you, I know that I can't. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The starting point is this. The man who hung on that cross, the father said this about him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when I give my life to Christ and, and trust him as my Lord and Savior, God's pleased with me because of Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. So there's no condemnation. But what I want you to see in this section is that Paul can also teach us that Christians can have an ongoing life change that becomes more pleasing to God. That there is the possibility through the power of the Holy Spirit that our lives are progressively becoming more pleasing to God. In fact, that's really an analogy of the Christian life. Someone once said this, the Christian life is a long thank you note to God. I don't live my life for Jesus because I'm paying him back. The Bible says, present your bodies by the mercies of God as a living sacrifice and be transformed so that you might prove what the will of God is. So it's very interesting. Here's how Paul described the Christian life. He said, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. He said in Ephesians 5, try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, right? And one of the marks of a Christian, if you're a Christian, that's in your heart. As you're doing stuff, you're asking yourself, does this please the Lord? Should, should I be watching this television show? Should I be spending my money or my time doing this? Should I be dating this person? Does this job please the Lord? When no one else is around and I'm, I'm in some hotel room on the other side of the country, am, am I pleasing to the Lord? And so what, what we're going to learn is that it's not enough to just go, I'm going to please God. We need the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that this morning. So let me review with you. We saw last week, I said this, that the work of Christ and the, and the indwelling spirit are the foundation for how I please God. Okay, so let's look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, stay there for a minute. So think about that. Okay, I want to be pleasing to God. Well, it starts with this. There's no condemnation. Could you line up the back uh, slide so I can see it back there as well? There's therefore... Thank you. There's no condemnation. Now, I think Paul's doing two things. Number one, he's saying positionally, as God views you. Now, I'll say to people, yeah, I got to go to court on Monday. Pray for me. Well, what are you going to plead? Nobody goes, oh, no, I never thought about that. They think about what they're going to plead. If you as a Christian stand before God, I'll tell you what to plead. Guilty as charged, but no condemnation because Christ paid for my sin. And so Satan doesn't want you to believe that. He wants you to feel guilty. He wants you to feel fearful that you haven't done enough. Even if you're a Christian, you have good devotions. There's no condemnation. But I think he's also talking about the Christian experience, not just our position, 
But he's going to go on to talk about fulfilling the requirements of the law, that, that progressively we're experiencing more of a sense that our lives are not constantly defeated and full of condemnation, but growing victory in the gospel. So here's why, Paul says, we're able to please God. Because number one, the work of Christ. Look at verse two. He, sa he says, the law, I'm sorry, not the work of Christ, the gift of the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And I think that's just a long way of saying the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit who has come into you in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I think he's using law more as a word play here. So here's, here's why there's no condemnation. Because you have the Holy Spirit. And now you're free from sin. But let's keep reading. So he, he goes, now we got to ground that in the work of Christ. You can please God, not because you ever reached a standard for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. We talked about this. What could the law not do? It couldn't make me right with God. God says, you want to get right with me? Here's my law. Keep it perfectly. And I go, I can't. The law could not make me right with God because of my sinful flesh. So God made me right with God by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. See, so when Satan starts telling you, you're condemned, you're condemned, you're condemned, the Bible says, take the shield of faith, resist those missiles, and, and remind yourself, wait, I'm, there's no condemnation. I'm not condemned because Jesus was condemned. So when the devil, tell him to take it up with Jesus because he was condemned on the cross so that I'm now standing in a position of forgiveness. But notice what Paul's point is. He says, God gave you the spirit to set you free. Now look at the next verse. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is the requirement of the law? Well, Jesus boiled it down. He said, love God with all your heart and love others. And frankly, try doing that in your own strength, right? This isn't a Mary Kay rally. I always say that. Come on, let's go out and love God. We can do it. Everyone, love God on three. One, two, three, love God, right? You can't do that. But the Holy Spirit has come into us. We have the spirit of life so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not perfectly, but progressively. Paul says the whole law is fulfilled in this, when you love God and love one another. And the reason that we can please God, Paul says, is we don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now here he's not talking about two types of Christians. All Christians walk according to the spirit in this passage, and I'll explain what I mean. So I just want you to get that first point. We can be pleasing to God. He doesn't just go, here, I forgive you, now just go out and slug it out and I'm really disappointed and, oh, you're a sinful wretch. But Christ died to put me right with God. He gave me the Spirit so that I can start being pleasing to God. Now, the next thing we're going to see in 5 through 8 is unbelievers can't be pleasing to God. So if you're here this morning and you're not a born-again Christian, if God hasn't changed your heart, you can just mark this down. Try as hard as you want. You cannot please God. And that's not what I say. That's what God says. So I want you to think about somebody who you know is not saved. You're like, yeah, but my neighbor, they're really nice. Or my Aunt Betty, she is so, I know somebody, they're not saved, but they went and lived in India, and they're helping the orphans. Unbelievers cannot please God because of their fundamental makeup, who they are. Look what he says in verse 5. 
He says, for those who are according to the flesh. Now, that's going to be a term that describes unbelievers. According to the flesh. Now, the flesh is that, that nature with which we're born that is corrupt and which is in rebellion against God. This isn't just drug addicts. This is everybody who's not saved. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Okay? Dogs don't naturally meow and crave kitty milk and tuna, right? Their minds are on meat and barking. Now you're like, well, my dog does, please. Don't carry the analogy too far. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh. So, so here's the thing. Most unbelievers are not out there, I want to kill people and take drugs and murder. They just, they just are doing their thing, right? They're just Burger king in it, having it my way, just living for themselves. And you're like, well, what's the big deal? They're not hurting anybody. I'll tell you what the big deal is. They're offending almighty, holy God who created them for his glory. And every day that men, women, boys, and girls fail to live for God, they're sinning against him. They don't even know it. But those who are Christians, those who are according to the Spirit, which Paul is going to say, that's all Christians. They set their mind on the things of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you think about the Bible. You think about Jesus. You think about lost people going to hell. You think about prayer. You think about church. Not all day long. I want you to think I only think about Sunday school and never think about sex. It's not like, oh, you know, what's wrong with me? I think, but, 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 the, but the bent, the disposition of a believer, a person who is according to the Spirit, thinks about spiritual things. Unbelievers think spiritual things are stupid. Why are you wasting an hour on Sunday morning? You could have been sleeping. Because they're in the flesh. And then he, then he takes it a step further. He says, let me tell you what this looks like in the life of unbelievers. Let's look at the next verse. It says, for the nine set on the flesh is death. So basically, people who have no interest in the things of God or are trying to please God their way, unbelievers, the ultimate outcome of that is going to lead to hell. When it says death here, he's not talking about they're going to die because Christians are going to die. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word death, it's that final, terrible, eternal outcome for everyone who doesn't come to Christ. The Bible describes it as the second death, the lake of fire. Don't let anybody tell you Hell is temporary. The Bible says day and night, men, the smoke of their torment will ascend up forever. So just being, doing your thing, living for yourself, the outcome of that leads to eternal death. But Christians have a mindset on the spirit. We've been changed by God. We have an orientation toward Jesus. And that leads to life and peace. Not every moment, but that's characteristic of a Christian. I have life I have peace with God, and I'm trying to develop peace with others. So Paul says, but let me stay on this idea of unbelievers. Here's why they can't please God. Look at verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Every parent probably at some point when their kid has done something really stupid has said to them, what's wrong with you? Right? I'll tell you, what's wrong with all of us? Left to ourselves... Humanity is hostile to God. Now, many people would disagree with that. They'd say, that's not true. I know a lot of people who really like God, but they're not saved. Well, you can say what you want. I can give my opinion, but I'm going with what God says. 
God says unbelievers are hostile to God. See, our mentality of what it means to be hostile to God is if you, if you curse at him and shake your fist at him. To ignore him is to be hostile to him. To fail to bow and worship and love and serve him day and night is to be hostile to him. To be neutral toward him is to be hostile to him. So Paul's saying this is why people who don't have the spirit can't please God. Their very mindset, their hard drive is not driven and connected to God's computer. They're cut off from God. They're hostile to him. They don't subject themselves to the law of God. They don't. You're like, oh, I know people who bow down seven times. That's, that's not subjecting yourself to God because you're not coming his way. No one comes to God left to themselves. And even if they wanted to, they're not able to. They do not have the capacity. When Adam sinned, humanity inherited condemnation and incurable corruption apart from Christ. So we need to keep that mindset. That's the Christian worldview. People without Jesus are in opposition to God. Even nice people, even religious people, they're in rebellion against God. It might be very subtle, it might be hidden, but that's how God describes unbelievers. And so Paul summarizes verse 8. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay? Okay. Okay, God, so you're saying... No matter how nice an unbeliever is, they can't please God because they're in the flesh. Their mind is disengaged from you. But you just said earlier that Christians can fulfill the requirement of law. Exactly. And that's his point. He's saying, you can, one through four, they can't, five through eight. And now he's going to tell us in verses nine through 11 why we can please God. So what we're going to see in nine through 11 is we can please God because we're in the spirit. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We've been changed by God. Look at verse 9. However, you, Paul's talking to all the Roman Christians. He's not saying, you, Pastor John, because he reads the Bible and prays a lot. You, all of you Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Okay? And then he, then he qualifies, and this confuses some people, if indeed the Spirit dwells in you. And some people have gotten confused over this. They're like, well, yeah, yeah, you can be a Christian. You're just not in the Spirit. You don't have the Spirit in you. And I'm going, no. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that you can be a Christian today and not have the Spirit in you. Because look what it says. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. So the moment you became a Christian, you gave your life to Christ, you were forgiven, you believed, you belonged to him. And at that moment, you were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now what Paul calls that, to be indwelled by the Spirit, is to be in the Spirit. Okay? He's not talking about walking in the Spirit, he's not talking about being filled with the Spirit, he's talking about being indwelled by the Spirit. Now this is really important, because somebody even sent me an email this week challenging, and that's fine, you know, challenging the idea that, hey, you know, you have to pray and pray and pray until suddenly the Holy Spirit falls on you and you speak in tongues. I think what they're confusing is this. There's a difference between being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are not the same terms. You're like, well, what does it mean, okay? The filling of the Holy Spirit 
is conditional. Ephesians 5 says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. So the filling of the Spirit isn't like, oh, I have to come and have the Holy Spirit come inside me and fill me because I don't have Him. The filling of the Spirit is, hey, the Spirit of God dwells in me, but there will be times where as I'm surrendered to Him, I'll experience more of His control, more of His power for ministry, more of the fruit of the Spirit, but that has nothing to do with His indwelling presence. So don't think of the filling of the Spirit as like a liquid quantity, like fuel in your body. You're like, gee, I'm not filled with the Spirit. I only have this much Spirit in me. So gulp, 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 now I'm filled with the Spirit. You don't need to get any more of the Spirit. He indwells you. The Spirit just needs to get more of you and me. As you yield to His control, then you will have experiences. And I'm fine with people saying, I want to pray for an experience of the Holy Spirit's power in my life. And many Christians testify to that. And I go, great. But that's not when you receive the Spirit. That's a filling of the Spirit. That's a, a, a second work of the Spirit that, and a third work and a fourth work. So God can do things to the Spirit later on in your life after you're a Christian, but that's not indwelling. So the point is, here's what Paul's saying. Look, you're a Christian. You're in the Spirit. The Spirit's in you. So you can please God. Unbelievers, they're hostile to God and they're going to head for death. Believers, you have the Spirit, and because the Spirit is in you, you can please God, and you're headed for eternal life. So look how he develops this idea of the indwelling Spirit heading us towards our final eternal life. He says, and if Christ is in you, which he is if you're a Christian, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And that's a tough one because you're going... What does he mean by that? The body is dead. Like, my body's not dead. Now, some of you, be hard to tell. You know? <laughs> Wait, no, <laughs> I think he wants me to pay attention. Yes! Okay, so I think what he means by this is this is a very select meaning of the word dead. Two verses later, he's going to talk about our mortal body. A mortal body is a corruptible body, a body that's still subject to death a body that's still going to die. Even though we're Christians, our body is dead in the sense that it's corruptible, it's mortal. You don't lose your mortal body when you become a Christian. So even though our body is dead in the sense that it's corruptible and mortal because of indwelling sin, he says, yet the spirit is alive. Our inner man has been made alive. And some people think he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. And I go, it can't be the Holy Spirit. Because he says the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Oh, so the Holy Spirit came alive because the Holy Spirit's always alive. So my inner man has been made alive because of the righteousness of Christ that I received in the gospel. So Paul goes, just think about it. He goes, you're in the Spirit, people. You got the Spirit in you. Yeah, you got a body that's going to die, but you're going to live forever because of the death of Christ and the Spirit. So next verse. He says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. See, yesterday I visited someone in the hospital who's got cancer and may, may possibly die. I pray it isn't so. But the hope of the Christian is this. Even if I have cancer and I'm going to die, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to my mortal body. That's what he means. Your body's dead because of sin. 
it, it's corruptible. It's going to die. So physically, yeah, unless Jesus comes back, we're going to die. But that same spirit who raised Jesus will give life to your mortal body through his spirit. You're going to be raised out of the ground just like Jesus was. And so, yeah, we cry and we weep and our hearts break when we lose loved ones, but not without hope. Because Paul says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, when Jesus comes back, God's going to bring with him all of them. The dead in Christ will rise and we'll be united together. So comfort one another. So Paul's sort of off on a little bit of a tangent. You have the spirit. You can please God. You're in the spirit. And because the spirit's in you, he's going to resurrect you someday. But then he says, now let me get back to my point about pleasing God. So verses 12 through 17 then are going to teach us this. Because we're in the spirit, we have the spirit inside of us. We now, as a result of the spirit inside of us, are marked by several characteristics. Obedience. Intimacy with God. Assurance of our salvation and perseverance and struggle. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Now that I have the Holy Spirit, I'm marked by obedience, intimacy, assurance, and perseverance. Well, think about what Paul's saying here. He goes, look, you can fulfill what God desires of you now that you're Christian because there's no condemnation. God's given you the Spirit. You're alive. You're able to please God. And now the Spirit of God is going to bring forth certain characteristics in your life. So I'll give you an illustration. My wife gave me permission for this. Sometimes we live our Christian life as though the Holy Spirit doesn't even exist. In Acts chapter 19, it says, Paul came to some disciples and he said, did you receive the Spirit? And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And I heard a preacher one time say, there's a lot of Christians like that. I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So, so Paul's teaching us here that to understand the gospel means I need to understand how does the Holy Spirit work in and through me to help me to please God. So sometimes we don't tap into that power. Now, this is the illustration I'm going to use with my wife's permission. She's smarter than me and more competent in so many ways, it's a pity. So once in a while, when she does something mortal and human, I, I kind of like, oh, good, I'm not the only dummy. <laughs> we had bought her a real nice watch, and we were up at Camp Spofford one summer. It's dark night, and, um, and it was an indiglo light, right, on her watch, set it on the box. So one night we're out, and it's dark, and she goes, hey, by the way, did I show you my indiglow light? And I said, no, let me see. And she holds out her watch, and each of the letters is fluorescent, right? And it's just lit up because it's fluorescent. It had been in the light. And she goes, see the indiglow light? And I go, honey, that's not the indiglow light. That's just fluorescent. She goes, what do you mean? So I press the button, and all of a sudden it went, boop, lit up. She goes, whoa. I go, that's an indiglow light, right? And what surprised me is I said, you know, and guys, we can relate to that. Most wives know how to press our buttons. Oh, did I? Wait, come on, don't send me a letter. I'm kidding. Come on, I, once in a while, a little levity. You, we do the same thing. But, but think about that, right? Oh, I didn't, oh, oh, there's more, right? So in some ways, some of us are living a fluorescent Christian life. It, it, you're, you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's inside of you right? There's little glimpses that, yeah, maybe something has happened, and God's going, no, I got way more for you. You need to learn about the ministry of the Spirit of God in your life. So what we're going to see here is I've got to just sort of look at Scripture and then look at my life and say, okay, so what should I be expecting as a result of having the Spirit in me, and what should I be doing about that? Well, look at verse 17. 
So, so we're talking now about, I'm sorry, not 17, verse um, 12. So then, brethren, Paul says, look, now that you're in the Spirit, Spirit's in you, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now remember, the flesh here is that, that corruption, that pull that characterizes unbelievers to just disobey God and live their way. And Paul says, why would I want to continue to live that way? If I'm a Christian, why would I live disconnected from God, doing whatever I want? In fact, he's going to go on to raise the stakes. He goes, if that's how you normally live, disconnected from God, doing whatever you want, he says, we're not under obligation to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because if you are, look at verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh... Which means, yeah, I, I raised my hand and I got saved, but my life is pretty much just dominated by doing whatever I want. Doesn't bother me to be a fornicator. Yeah, I lie if I need to. This church stuff, you know, it's all right, I go to church. Paul describes what that looks like. He says in Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh are evident. If you're living a constant life of immorality and impurity, he says if, you're, if your life is characterized by sensuality, strife and jealousy and hostility and envy. If you're always arguing, fighting, mad, struggling, unfriending everybody, cursing people out. He says, if your life is characterized by drunkenness and other um, substance addictions, idolatry, where you just totally disregard God. He says, let me remind you that those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says, if, if a person calls himself a Christian and all they do is live for themselves and sin doesn't bother them, when he says you must die, literally in, in the Greek it says you're about to die. Hang down your head because you're going to die, right? And the point is this, don't be fearful if you go, oh, I still, I still do some of those things. We're talking about a lifestyle that's characterized by that. That's just... That's pretty much how you are. There's a whole lot of people who think just because they said a little prayer that, oh, I must be saved because I said the words they told me to say. Christians have been changed in their heart. Fundamentally, we're different. And as a result of that, Paul says, so Christians live according to the Spirit. Not perfectly, but, but ask yourself, when you sin, does that bother you? Do you feel conviction? Do you, do you, do you want to walk with God, or you're like, who cares? I mean, I've literally heard people say stuff like this. Yeah, I'm getting a divorce, so what? I have hell insurance. Now, it doesn't mean all divorces are wrong. There are some biblical reasons, but it's this mindset that, like, it doesn't matter how I live. I'm saved. Paul says, look, you Christians, my brothers and sisters, you're living in the Spirit. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die, but, but then he says, well, then, well, how do I change? He says, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live, what does he mean by that? This is the first mark of a Christian. You will begin to have obedience towards God. So what does that look like? The deeds of the body are those desires to do things that we know God doesn't want us to do. Okay? So let's be honest with one another. Everybody here desires to do things God doesn't want them to do. And they're not always overt, terrible things like murder. It can be very subtle things like holding in a bitter spirit because it just feels good to be angry at that person. So Paul says, 
How am I going to stop putting to death the deeds of the body? Remember in chapter 7, he goes, why do I keep doing what I don't want to do? Now he's in chapter 8, he says, here's how. By the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. In other words, if, if, if desires creep up and come alongside of you and say, yeah, it's all right. You know, notice that, that girl at work, she looks so trim and she's, she's so sweet, not like my wife. You know, why don't we just go have coffee, right? Paul doesn't say, cuddle it. He says, kill it. Put to death the deeds of the body. Does that make sense? So, so this, is, this is dealing harshly with sin. But notice this important phrase, by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. And this is where we all struggle to find that balance. If you just had that phrase, put to death the deeds of the body, then it's, it's, it's little red train Christianity. I want to be nice to my, my wife. I want to be nice to my husband. And you go, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to be nasty anymore. I'm putting that to death. And then you get home. <sighs> right? But on the other hand, some people, they have this let go and let God mentality. You know, I just, I just give it over to Jesus. I can't change. I can't stop that. I mean, you know, but I'll just wait till God stops it. I let go and let God. And I'm going, do you pray? Do you struggle? Do you read your Bible? You're getting counseling? You're taking drastic measures if your right hand causes you to sin? You're cutting it off? Well, no. I just let go and let God. So if you said to Paul, well, what is it, Paul? If I'm going to live a life pleasing to God, do I just depend on the Holy Spirit? Or do I discipline myself and try to put to death the deeds of the body? And Paul would say, yes. He would say the Christian experience is like two oars of a rowboat. And if you just try to do it your way, I'm going to not do that anymore. You're going to go in circles. But if you just let go and let God, you're still going to go in circles. So fundamentally, Jesus is calling you and me to change. It's unacceptable. And this is one of the big things that I find in Christians. They're like, oh, I can't stop that. I can't. You've got to understand, I can't. Listen to me. Frequently, I've said to people, if someone put a gun to your head and said, if you do that once more, I'm going to shoot you on the spot. You think you would stop? They go, yeah. I go, well, then, then we got a different issue. It's not that you can't. You aren't convinced that you really deep down want to yet. And a lot of times our sin struggles are partly rooted in the fact that we don't really want to stop. And then we just go, I can't stop. So I have to be committed to saying, Lord, whatever you want me to do to put to death those sinful behaviors in my life, I'm willing but I also have to be extremely dependent on the Spirit. And this is why I want to encourage you to develop more attention in your prayer life towards the ministry of the Spirit. Oh, Lord, strengthen me through the Spirit. I know it's going to be a hard day with that difficult person. I know temptations are going to come across my path. And I've only, I, this is the way I always react. And God says, I know. And that's why you need to be taught from the word of God that you are not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. And by the spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body. It's an ongoing process of change. So whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. There's no exceptions. It might take counseling. It might take prayer. It might take fasting. It might take a group of Christians surrounding you and helping you to change. But there are no Humpty Dumpsies with Jesus. He could put you back together again. As long as we, we recognize the beauty of the gospel. 
So this is a really positive passage. Paul's saying, look, we have the Spirit. We can change. We can say no to sin. We don't get it right every time, but that's what we're praying for. That's why we gather around the Word. So quickly as we close, there's a couple other marks. He says, because we're in the Spirit, number one, we have growing obedience, which is what he calls being led by the Spirit of God. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He's not talking here about being led to go witness to somebody. He's talking about being led to overcome sin. This is the mark of a Christian. You can say to yourself, one of the evidences I have in my life that I'm a Christian is my relationship with sin has changed. I'm not the same person I used to be. Okay? And that's a mark that you're a child of God. And the beauty is, is you're not a child of God that God's going down there and saying, I can't stand you. Because one of the other gifts of the Spirit is intimacy with God. Look what Paul says. And because I'm a son of God, look at the next verse. He says, you haven't received a spirit of slavery leading to fear. And I'll be like, oh, God's going to put me in hell. But I've received a spirit of adoption. I'm his son, and, and I have intimacy with him. I cry, Father, help me. Father, I need you. Daddy, see, God's not up there, this mean, spooky spirit in the sky. Now, some of you have had a father that's a jerk, and that's hard for you to identify with God as an intimate father. But it's not impossible. You need to more and more immerse yourself in Scripture and see what kind of father God is. He's, he's a good father. He loves to give us good things. He's a father who loves us enough to discipline us, to listen to us, to protect us and provide for us. So, so, so today, as we leave, we go, listen, I don't have to be defeated all the time. I have the Spirit. I'm alive in Christ. I can put to death the deeds of the body. I can pray this week and say, Father, my daddy, I love you. Help me, God. I'm scared, Father. Provide for me. I have intimacy with God. Last thing, and we'll stop over 16. I also have a progressive assurance that I'm a Christian. How do you know you're a Christian? Well, there's a number of ways, but one of them is this verse. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. You say, well, what do you mean? Hang on just a minute. I don't hear nothing, right? It doesn't mean that he's going to say, hey, Tom, you're a Christian. And I go, what was that? It's me, the Holy Spirit. Who are you talking to, Holy Spirit? I'm talking to your spirit. It's not, it's not, it's mysterious, okay? But it's true that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit gives us a progressing assurance of our relationship with Christ. Now listen, if you're sitting there going, I don't have a clue whether I'm saved. I don't even know whether I'm going to heaven, okay? That does not mean you're not a Christian, okay? There are many Christians who struggle with assurance, okay? So this verse is not saying anyone who doubts they're Christian, it's because they're not a Christian, okay? But if you are struggling with assurance, then I would encourage you to probe that and try to go, I wonder why. One reason why some Christians struggle with assurance is they want to be sure that they're a Christian, but they live like the devil. And talk about an emotional discord there because... They're reading verses like, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Many will, I'll say to you, get out of here. I never knew you who practice wickedness. So perhaps your assurance is weakened because your lack of obedience to Christ. But for some of you, there are many other reasons why Christians can lack assurance. But there are a number of ways the Spirit is testifying, and I trust and pray that he testifies to your heart. Maybe it's through others. Maybe it's through some experience where you're beginning to understand Scripture that's a work of the Spirit. He's opening your eyes. Maybe he's 
changing your affections and you're going, gosh, I like, I like religious stuff. I like learning about Jesus. These are all ways that the Spirit of God gives you a progressive assurance that you're a Christian. And that can grow in your Christian life and it's a wonderful thing to have assurance that, oh, I'm accepted by God and I'm not living my life to try to hope he gets me to heaven. Now I can be free to love him and serve other people. So I hope this passage is very encouraging to you. We'll pick it up next week in verse 17. But let's take a moment to pray as we think about what is this going to look like. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us the spirit so we can learn to please God. Thank you that we're in the spirit. And Father, I know that there are times that even this week I've indulged or given into the flesh instead of putting it to death. But I pray that you'll forgive all of us as a church family and help us corporately to disciple one another with the gospel. To realize that we can please God because we are free and because you've put your spirit in us. Thank you that you're our father. And Lord, I pray that you will encourage us with sweet assurance and intimacy with God. And if you're here this morning and and God is convicting you and you just want to start your life over. You want a new life with Christ because you know that you're, you're, you're messed up and, and you, you want to give your life to Christ and begin to trust and follow him. You can do that right now. The best you know how, just say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my heart to you. I believe that you died to take away my condemnation. Put your Holy Spirit inside of me and change my heart today and I will follow you as my Lord and Savior. If that's your prayer, be sure to let one of us know on your way out the door. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. Bless our church and send us out in the spirit for our divine appointments and growing in grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.